I feel surrounded and in awe of the knowledge of others. In that, I find the sparks of creativity and craft, the dedication, the labor, the passion in science and art. Welcome to a new series that we're calling Pings, conversations with creators, chats with thinkers and tinkerers, a little bit looser, a little bit more uncontrolled, a little bit rougher. This is learning in real time through exchanges and wonders and doubt. Pings aren't replacing our usual episodes. They are supplements to them. They're conversations about our worlds, about our crafts, about our passions. Today, we spend an hour with Emily Cabanis, librarian and archivist for the Seattle Opera. You don't have to have seen any opera or know anything about it to enjoy Emily's behind-the-scenes insights and her deeply personal approach to its themes and its resonances. We spend about 45 minutes talking about the process and the product of opera, and the art of putting on a show. And then we switch to a wonderful segment where Emily guides us through two excerpts from well-known pieces. She brings them to life in a way I never expected. Please excuse the imperfect audio quality here. We're still working on our mobile recording setup. But without further ado, I'll let Emily introduce herself. Coming up to the surface, I'm Rod Fadak, and you're peering through the Periscope. Today, we're talking with Emily about opera. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my name is Emily Cabanis. Uh, I'm 26 years old, and I've been seeing operas since I was um, 15. When I was a high schooler, uh, Seattle Opera had this program where you could uh, come to the dress rehearsals uh, as a kid, and we would all like bust down and go. And so that was how I started seeing opera. The first opera that I saw was um, Pagliacci. And, um, I just like kept going. And then when I went to college in Tacoma, Washington, I was still coming up to Seattle to see opera. And, um, when I was looking for a kind of a jobby job while I was in graduate school, I started selling tickets here. Hmm. Um, and I sold tickets while I was in graduate school. I wanted to be a librarian and I wanted to be a music librarian, but I didn't have the bachelor's degree. So I kind of thought that door was closed. But, um, after I finished my master's in library and information science, um, like I was still looking for work and working in the ticket office and, uh, they posted for a librarian here. And I said, hi, hmm. I've been long time, long time listener, <laughs> first time caller. And I would like to, uh, you know, I, I think I demonstrated a huge like interest in the subject, but also had some background already in special libraries. And so, yeah, it was just kind of a, lifelong like affection for opera i think it you know all teenagers are like simultaneously incredibly dramatic and also think that they're totally alone and i think (laughs) i think opera was for me the outlet of you know melodrama and also kind of feeling like no one understood you except opera um I like really adored it and didn't expect to work in it. Um, but happened to have like the tech and, um, library skills to kind of whip this library into shape. I think, yeah, like if you had asked me, uh, when I was 15 and then going to the opera, if, if, if I would be satisfied with growing up to be the librarian at the opera, I would have said, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So I guess I, uh, got my, dream job and like, now I don't really know where to go from here <laughs> or just keep going yeah so I kind of peaked early I guess but <laughs> yeah, that's great. yeah so that's um that's how I got here and I think um it's it's only gotten better like I've only gotten I've only grown to love opera more not less in my time here and um seeing how it comes together has been I just the I, I feel so grateful all the time to be part of what we've been on stage. So. Was there anything that you felt when you first got started, especially I think as a librarian and less mm-hmm. on the ticket sales side mm-hmm. that felt like, wow, I'm really seeing the the back end of this a lot more. Was that, was there any surprise in terms of seeing how the sausage is made more or less? Yeah. Well, I was, I think it really drove home for me how non-spontaneous theater is, even if it looks spontaneous, like we plan stuff three years in advance. Like we know what's happening everything is timed to the 32nd mark. And 
I think I really liked that because I was like, these are like my people. They always want to know exactly what's going to happen. And that's, you know, when we make music, you know, our goal is to make it sound like that's not what's happening. Like we don't have a plan. It's just coming out of us. It's divine grace or whatever. No, we know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And when that doesn't happen, we freak out. <laughs> so I think that the thing that really surprised me was, yeah, how um, the pre-planning, it wasn't just the control of time in theater. It was the desire to know everything before it happened, um, to never be caught by surprise. Like that's, that was what, what I hadn't realized until I started working here, that um, we want the audience to be surprised. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So in a sense, like that's where your thoughts about kind of this differentiation between art and labor are coming from in terms of your appreciation for opera when you were younger yeah, and the way that you personally mm-hmm. interacted with it versus kind of then coming behind the scenes. And- yeah. an affection for the art is really, you know, comes from this like affection or like love of the beauty of the art and knowing that I became interested in opera because I was seeing the end result of all of this labor has also made me really grateful. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, to realize that that doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from years and years of work, not just in production sphere, but also like our singers who study and train for years and, you know, our musicians who work so hard. And like, it's, it's the culmination of years and years of effort that doesn't, that doesn't have necessarily an end route. Like there, you don't know how your practice hours are going to turn out until you've done this like really beautiful work. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. That's your reward. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think you have to love the work because you don't yeah. really know what you're going to get. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like the, the performers and the technicians and, mm-hmm. and everybody on the back end who experienced the labor of mm-hmm. the art do you think that they understand art differently then in the, in that sort of performative expression? It, it means something different. I think they recognize that it doesn't come easy. And mm-hmm. I think that that, um, not to be unfair to our audiences that aren't involved in the performing arts, but I think the appreciation when you're not involved is seen as like an appreciation of talent and, the appreciation for us, like it's there. We love the art and we love like the beautiful work, but it's an appreciation of time and work. Not so much talent. The talent is a really, really small part of the puzzle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the same probably goes for people who are watching the Olympics now, for mm-hmm, instance, mm-hmm. And, and know what it's like to train very hard for a sport <laughs> yeah. and can appreciate the performance of the, that, tra- those training hours. Yes. Yeah. The talent isn't quite enough. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, to know that if you're, if you're not going to do the work, it doesn't, yeah, the talent doesn't mean Jack. And, um, yeah, we talk about like the Olympics and there's always this thrill of like watching kind of people who are elite at what they do, do that work. Um, and I think we, I think we definitely have that, but we get it. It's like once it goes on stage, I mean, I feel personally like once it's on stage, I don't care. I'm like done. Mm-hmm. It's it's in the room. Like when we're rehearsing that I'm like, this is incredible art or like this is the thrill of like seeing talent like up close. And I think that's really, so I think you develop a much more intimate relationship with that talent. and. Um, see it in action. And so your appreciation is yeah different. You're not seeing the finished project product most of the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really interesting in a certain sense that you're actually f- feeling the, the art as you're in the midst of mm-hmm. producing it, that that's cause then you have that moment when you're, when you're just watching the dress rehearsal or watching the actual yeah. performance where you're yeah. like, okay, it's done. Right? Yeah, like, we, did we, it. we did it. Great. And now it just runs through the gears yeah. that we've like put <laughs> yeah. together. Yeah. But I think that's really cool because I think, you know, the, the sort of inverse is almost true for, for the, the, director or somebody who's like okay now it's the audience member who has to sit down and experience this piece of art which is closed in that you know four-hour box i mean our director's like i mean they fly out of town once they're done with tech like they might stay for opening night and a couple of performances but i think it's i think it's so funny because for us it's like this is our gift to you the audience for you guys it's just beginning we're already working on the next show Mm -hmm. and it's totally like yeah the, the 
peak or climax of the work for us is not opening night. Mm. Or that's what it feels like anyway. Yeah. At the time it's opening night, we there are no surprises. Right. Which is exactly how we like it. Would you say would you say that like if we had a stage manager and, mm-hmm. you know, a leading actor mm-hmm. and singer in mm-hmm. here, they would feel the same way? Or did it, would they there's a different sort of rhythm to all of that, right? Yeah, I think that the I mean I think my contribution to the work does happen during the planning phase. So before we're even in the room, sometimes before it's even cast, because I'm sourcing information like scores, videos, recordings, and things like that. Um, And yeah, by the time we start, I'm kind of done too. I'm like, this is my gift to you. I'm already on the next thing. Uh, So by the time we open, I've totally forgotten about it. Um, I think there's definitely that ebb and flow though. You know, I think our stage manager would say, yeah, by opening night, we've got it down ideally. And then yeah, our singer would say, uh, no, opening night is very scary. Like, <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's like, um, it's a relay. Like there's this kind of series of handoffs and yeah. yeah. I think collaborative work like that is amazing for producing a piece of art. I think that's really unique in a certain sense. Of- it, yeah, it is unique and it's unique in particular to opera because of the combination of the music and the theatricality. Um, and sometimes the addition of dance, like it's, it's, its scale has to be huge, even if the opera is not huge, because there's so many different experts that you need in the room. Um, there's so many different people who like come at, view opera through a different lens, um, coming together to put it together. And so, you know, it's this really like gratifying and joyous team experience where everyone on the team as an expert in what they do and also like holds very deep respect for the other experts on the team. And that's really, it's really magnificent collaboration. There's like, and there's also this devotion to the production and the show and the art such that I think that devotion overrides ego so much in this kind of work. Mm. So you don't end up, yeah, everyone cares more about the show than they do about being right. Which is yeah. I was going to ask about ego. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I see it as much as I would have expected to. Yeah, because um, I think there's that you know traditional notion yeah, of like the divas. Yeah, You're just going to work with the divas and everything around them, right? Right. Well, and I can't say that we've never had anyone here who didn't have like kind of a big head, but um, I think one, if you don't act professionally, you don't keep getting work, and so you know that's a good incentive to not have a big ego but the other thing is just yeah opera we're not doing it for the money like we would not be doing it if we did not really love it mm-hmm. um so i think you know we've created a culture for ourselves by like modeling this kind of lack of ego but um yeah we've also kind of recognized that like the only way to do it is for everyone to kind of <laughs> chill out <laughs> and get to work yeah. so yeah it's really um, I, even, even when people have been like kind of difficult, no one has ever been like a stereotypical, like diva. No one's ever been absolutely off the wall absurd. Like yeah. there's been so much like kindness and, um, appreciation for each other that it, it cancels out all of that stuff. You know, there's so, but I think the, m- most of the performing arts in general have that approach um, or try to have that approach. So, which makes it unusual, I think, from other yeah. collaborative environments. Our real goal when we make opera, like it's not supposed to happen in a vacuum, right? This is not academic. We are trying to put butts in seats and we're trying to sell tickets so we can keep making opera. And I think we have really struggled with this vocal non-audience coloring the work that we put on stage, even though they're not coming. And that audience is the one that says, opera is boring, make it fun. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So we do things like contemporary productions of operas where we like update it and then it kind of, and then it comes off funny because it doesn't make sense to play tricks like the ones in Cozy in 2018, right? That's mm-hmm. th- Those are just mean tricks then. Um, or we do works that we think will appeal to those audiences that say opera is boring. Only here's the thing, they weren't coming anyway. They're not coming now. If they do come, 
they say, this is still boring and it sucks because you're trying too hard now. Mm-hmm. And so I think the thing that makes opera relevant is when we uh, stop trying to chase down people that aren't coming anyway and start, you know, catering to the art instead of trying to sucker in an audience by like pretending to be like them. Mm-hmm. We're like us. We're opera makers mm-hmm. and you can come enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think that there's something also about the material in opera? So that the thematics, the way that mm-hmm. it, it's written, the, the way that it's structured mm-hmm. for delivery that makes it harder or easier. I don't know what in comparison to, um, to draw out those themes and make them sort of resonate for those audiences. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's a, a, a sort of mission that should be undertaken to like extract the sort of like contemporary resonances yeah. of like of, of operatic? I mean, I think it depends on how much work you want your audience to do, because I think a lot of times these operas themselves highlight systems that are broken but really inexplicitly. And so the question is, do you want to just show the story and expect your audience to be like, wow, this is a really bad system. Or do you want to contextualize the work? And part of the show is going to a lecture and learning how this work is about a system that's broken or going to, um, yeah, like reading in your program, like this is what this opera is about. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> and well, when I, you say system, when you would like, well, you okay, so yeah, now we'll give some examples. Yeah. So, I will talk about Madame Butterfly because you saw Madame Butterfly in yeah. the summer. Um, Madame Butterfly is an opera that on its face, right, is about this um girl who gets married to this soldier, and he's also American and a lot older than her, and she's Japanese and she's 15 years old, and he leaves her in this really crummy situation. She has a kid, she's alone in the house, she's starving to death because he's abandoned her, and you know, she ends up killing herself. So that's a sad story. What Madame Butterfly is also about, though, is colonialism, American exceptionalism, the way that we treat women, the way that we traffic child brides, the way that we uh, have female characters commit suicide instead of having them work their way out of their problems because we would rather kill them than like actually see them succeed. Um, like that's a story that highlights these systems that are broken and you're supposed to go to Madame Butterfly and think, you know, what an ugly American story. You're supposed to go to Madame Butterfly and think this thing actually happened and that was really bad. Um, and the, yeah, the question is, do we want our audience to go in and get to that conclusion themselves? Because often they don't. Mm-hmm. Or do we want to beat them over the head with that context mm-hmm. and then make them feel stupid because we want it so badly for them to get there? Um, I think it's really, I think it really goes back and forth. We have this idea that um, it's harder to talk about those systems and make them feel like they resonate with their audiences. So instead we put people in modern dress. And the idea is that's supposed to bring the system to light, but it doesn't because it just doesn't. It just fails. It It's distracting, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's this fear that if they're in like anything that is pre-1900 dress, everyone's going to be like, this doesn't matter to us anymore. Right. And that's not true. Like we don't. I don't, I don't think we give audiences the benefit of the doubt when yeah. we do that. Well, again, I mean, going back to <laughs> not that everything should go back to Hamilton, but mm-hmm. I feel like Hamilton, you know, is an example of where everybody is running around in kind of, you know, American revolution garb mm-hmm. and it still feels like <laughs> extremely fresh and contemporary and modern. Yeah. But I think it's because it has that, that extra layer on top of hip hop and yeah. these kinds of, you know, colored cast and crew and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> And the other thing is that it it doesn't come with this, like, uh, please love me vibe or, like, this is novel. It it never tries to make the case for its integrity, like, through that novelty. And that's what we do a lot in opera. We say, we updated the costumes. Please come. That's why opera matters. We updated the costume. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So then, I guess, going back to the idea of kind of 
updating or keeping period pieces intact what how do you feel what's the line that people are walking and how do you feel like that's done well and how do you feel like that's not done well and you know i mean in terms of thinking about the experience of the butt in the seat mm-hmm. like what is or or even not the butt not in the seat the butt like talking from the their couch like commenting on yeah things, exactly like, i would never like, go see this <laughs> right so how do you, i mean how does it how do we draw in the the sort of viewer or non-viewer to understand opera as a sort of an art form that does comment on broken systems mm-hmm. or on things that what is that what really makes that experience like resonate for for people or should it or should opera be niche <laughs> i mean i don't know if it should be niche i do think that opera has um done this terrible thing to itself because it used to be the opera like going to the opera was like going to the baseball game right you would sit on like hay bales and like get snacks in the middle of the show and stuff like that and then it became this thing of like i mean opera created this 180 for itself and the way it marketed itself was this thing where you would go and sit in like dead silence and listen and the houses got bigger and bigger and the experience got less and less intimate because then it started to feel intimidating um and so i think I think when we think about drawing in the non-viewer, what we really have to think about is making the experience like not intimidating and not like a special occasion, but like a thing that you do just like you would go to the movies. Um, and I think, I actually think the secret to a lot of that stuff, it's not the answer, but it's a big part is smaller houses. Mm. Um, because when you're sitting way, way up there, it does not feel the same to watch like these really tender moments in opera mm-hmm. they're grand and they're big and they're collaborative but so many times the stories of operas that have really resonated through the years are stories about people that are pretty much anonymous like they're characters they're not historical figures i mean that's not true there's tons of operas about historical figures but so frequently the things that people respond to really well emotionally are characters that yeah are totally fictional even if they highlight real world problems and they're characters that you want to feel intimate like like you have like this intimate relationship with them and when the house is so big that you can't see their faces it's like well yeah how do you then relate to that like we put these stories on stage and then we kind of hold the group at arm's length Mm -hmm. um i think it yeah creates this environment where um you just feel you i think the intimidation of opera or like the disinterest or the disinterest that we see people express in opera because they say it's boring is really intimidation or really this feeling that if you don't get it the way the person next to you gets it then you got it wrong and that's Mm-hmm. Something we all need to work on when we talk about art and how anybody can access art, but especially I think that's a danger to opera um, because we've because it's supposed to be a pretty intimate experience and we've created a world instead where it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I can just from personal experience of having been viewer of mm-hmm. both like Broadway musical. Mm-hmm sort of theater in the round style mm-hmm. where like I was like three feet away from the performers mm-hmm. uh, and having, you know, a, a dramatic experience that was also musical, yeah. which is very compatible. I think with opera, it doesn't have to be yeah. this sort of formal distance that yeah. I felt kind of in the big mm-hmm. sort of the, the theater setting. Mm-hmm. So I think, do you think that something like that is possible for, for opera to like change its venues? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the risk then is like, you're not selling as many tickets, but it costs the same. Mm-hmm. to produce and so that's yeah that's the problem yeah. <laughs> it costs a lot of money to make opera and um yeah it's definitely possible if we're seeing it manifest um here in seattle with like second spaces but also small small like one-off opera productions that we're seeing too and um i think that the strong benefit of them is that yeah they create a more intimate experience for viewers who have been already conditioned to think of opera as like a fat lady in the Val- in the viking helmet which is also a good way to experience opera. Mm-hmm. It's just people don't people don't like that mm-hmm. anymore. I think um yeah, I think what we're seeing is uh, we are moving towards more intimate settings 
because opera is so big, it's a big ship. It takes a long time to turn around. Yeah, I think it's just changing tastes. And I don't know, we've seen tastes change and ebb and flow all the time in the history of opera and theater. People want to see different stuff. And it's okay. Um, it's just about adapting. You'd also be surprised, too, because the most reliable butts and seats are people who, yeah, do want to see, like, Madame Butterfly. And they want to see it ten times, and they want to see it the same way every time. Like, mm-hmm. it's also this thing, yeah, where when we when we move to these smaller venues, when we move to make opera a more intimate experience to draw in non-viewers, those aren't known entities. Non-viewers aren't known entities. We don't know what's going to happen. We do know if we do. We do one of the war horses like Tosca and we do it 10 times like yeah those houses are going to fill up like there are butts in seats mm-hmm. um we don't always we haven't historically taken a super data driven approach to how we program um but i think the data would show yeah butts and seats you want you got to do the war horse mm-hmm. i don't know which is funny cuz like yeah and then people come and complain about them but i don't know <laughs> what i don't know what to do yeah huh. i'm just the librarian <laughs> yeah. i can't fix opera yeah <laughs> yeah do you feel like it's going to be the thing that is steering that ship differently um, if it needs to be steered differently? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's going to be one breakout opera that's going to make like suddenly be sampled and be this kind of thing that can be, you know, understood by a wide audience of people and kind of a, I don't know, call it a Black Panther moment where it's like, oh, this is actually really cool. And yeah. <laughs> we're finally seeing representations of other things a and Black other art Panther forms. Moment. Or yeah. is it going to be a sort of saturation of small shows? Like what was the one you were talking about before? The one about the trans? As one. As one. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be a sort of saturation of these kinds of smaller shows that are building audience awareness over time? Or is it going to be a little bit of both maybe? I think it's, Without a doubt, it is the the second answer, yeah. a saturation of small shows. Because um, I think what happens is those shows, they premiere somewhere and they get a ton of buzz. And then like the third and second tier opera companies can afford to produce them, which gives them something because they can't afford to produce like the War Horses. It mm-hmm. gives them something to bring opera to communities that don't have access to big opera companies. Um, and so it spreads much faster. It's easy for a young artist's program or like a community education uh, program to pull off. And so it can be done much more cheaply and with a faster turnaround and reach more audiences that way. So I think I think that's the answer. I wish it was the first answer, though, because I, I think I think that would be I mean, that would really like make me I don't know how that would it would make me feel very good because I think that that's how. Um the operas that I loved when I came into opera, like came to be, they were these like uh, shows that when they premiered, they shattered like how we thought of opera. And I think, I think, yeah, it's going to be little shows, lots of little shows that build up. And I'm already seeing because we planned stuff three years in advance. I'm hearing about it now, but I think three to five years, it's going to be the thing to go see a chamber opera in like your tiny town. And that'll be cool. I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to it. Um, it's just it's just too risky to put a big show on stage that's never been tested before. Mm-hmm. Um, even stuff that is like twenty like twentieth century, like mid century opera, people are like, "This is weird. I don't like it." Like it's a huge risk anyway, and so like. And so, like, something that was written, like, in 2018, people would be like, I don't know. I don't know about that. And so, we kind of have to reach reach people through chamber opera when we do new opera anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes me think a lot of the difference. I mean, people talk all the time about this. So, it's really, like, beating a dead horse to talk about opera versus film. But I think that um, one of the things that makes opera historically feel less appealing to a younger generation is the is the difference between the way that we show character in opera versus film like mm-hmm. in opera when someone is singing you take what they say at face value right right they they tell you how they feel mm-hmm. um and in film you don't really have to take what they say at face value but you can take what they do at face value and so it's 
the, I think that reversal makes opera feel very stodgy for people. And right. I think we're seeing in chamber opera that we can take more intimate uh, settings for those characters and have them sing at face value. And that's much better received because hmm. it feels like um, it feels more personal and true instead mm-hmm. of like broadcasting to this house of like thousands of people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. You can sort of feel like you're sharing in that personal moment as a smaller audience mm-hmm. of that there can be irony or there can be sort of fibbing and there can be play or yes. doesn't have to like be a very literal expression mm-hmm. to an audience of people that you would never lie to 1000 people yeah. about. <laughs> or that if it's, if it is a really literal expression, it feels like someone that, you know, like confessing to you and it doesn't feel like, because I think when you have this distance and you're having this literal expression um, from a character, you feel like, it's replacing plot movement. They're like, I feel angry because of X, Y, Z. And like, you feel like, well, why don't we just see somebody get mad? Like, but when it happens, yeah, in a chamber setting or a more intimate setting, you feel angry too. Cause it feels like someone is telling you like, I'm deeply hurt. And you're like, yeah, I feel upset as well. (laughs) It's, it's, it's much more personable. And so, um, yeah, I think in, I think that that's the way that opera can succeed. I, I think the thing that, that I'm wondering also, again, yeah. from your positionality as, yeah. so like when we, when we went to Madame Butterfly, mm-hmm. it was very front and center mm-hmm. that this, this has a lot of issues mm-hmm. in terms of its representation of women and yeah. the sort of buried commentary that's in there that you might not get. So again, that, that this is actually a story about American colonialism and yeah. not just a representation of like a one sort of bad a, guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think that all of that is in there, but there's obviously a lot of work that was done that was very sort of politicized, you know, overtly or non-overtly and and that you guys were doing a lot of work in the yeah. background to make sure that that was shown. Yeah, we did some like round tables with um uh Asian American artists to talk about butterfly and like that yeah. kind of representation in theater and stuff like that. Um, as as you're in your position mm-hmm. as a librarian, are you again from that textual angle, are you pulling out and and helping to craft around or through some of those really like hot button things yeah i make bibliographies for our staff about race and gender and opera Um, okay i can't make them read that stuff but i can like tell them like this is how you can find this stuff one part of my work that is particular to me in the library and not really particular to anyone else's work in the opera is something that i think a lot of other librarians deal with too i have a lot of works about composers and people who were not good people but made good work and so one thing that i i I don't want to say like struggle with because it's part of my job so one thing that i think about a lot and work on in my job is how i can balance presenting work about those people and individuals that is useful for our work but also contextualizes them too um how do i how do I make sure that if I have a library of books that are all about Richard Wagner, that I accurately represent the fact that he was like a really vicious Mm -hmm. anti-Semite, like things like that, like making sure that, yeah, if I have, if I have books about Madame Butterfly, I also have books about like the Asian American experience in opera. Like how do I, so like, I think as the librarian, my engagement is more about making sure that I balance what's on the shelf and make sure that use of my library doesn't mean encountering racism. Like coming to my library should not mean that you like look at the books that I have on my shelf and only see books that like ignore this like huge component of matter. Like that's, I mean, I think that's a really terrible experience to like, yeah. yeah, to be like, I'm looking for books to, you know, talk about this, but there's this huge gap. So like, I, I don't, I try to not have gaps and I, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a huge body of literature, but I've tried to collect as much of the literature as I can. I can't make anyone read it, but what people see on the shelf is a message. Um, and so I try to make sure my shelf sends a message that I don't think that this work doesn't have problems. 
but here's the work. I mean, that's really interesting. Do you feel like that other people have adopted strategies in their own expressive working methods as they nurture this thing to life that for instance, just taking Madame Butterfly, not that yeah. we need to flog it, and, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. like in the production of that, are there ways, as you're saying that, that this sort of relay or baton race goes when everybody's kind of putting this collaborative work together, do you hear it? Do you feel it of people mm -hmm. being like, okay, this is how we're tackling this problematic issue. Mm -hmm. We're going to do X, Y, and Z to mm -hmm. get around that or through it. And yeah, we do that. I, I think all of, I think you know, nobody has total control over the opera. That's the idea is that everyone is really good at their thing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, everyone that I work with thinks about their thing and whether or not it needs to change. And I think that it's, I don't know. I think it's really positive um, to see that. And it's so like, I don't know. It feels so bad because you have just such a small part. And you're doing what you can, but you know it doesn't really get better. Um, I think the the battle is not should you change your work to make it more equitable. I think the battle is should we do the work at all? If it like can the work be made equitable? And some people think that it can, and some people think that it can't. And so then, yeah, that's the that's the debate. Um, I think it can be. I think. I mean, I think that everyone has to do their very, very small part and that it is a big ship to turn around, but I don't see any reason at all for opera to like, for operas, for some operas to like go away or like mm -hmm. for things to disappear entirely um, just because it's hard to do it right. Mm -hmm. You just have to be committed to doing it right. It, it, it's been such a struggle too, because it did used to be the opera was a thing you could do if you had money, like working in opera and um, I think that's why it's so important to um, make sure that the people who make opera are paid living wages because when they are paid, when you are, when you are paying them living wages, they do not have to be independently wealthy mm -hmm. and have all of the privilege and bias that comes with that to make right. opera. Right. That makes opera better too. Yeah. Like equitable pay yeah. is essential for equity in art. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it too, right? Yeah. It's having like, having opera be a representation of, mm -hmm. of the community in a certain way. As you well. have to have people that make it represent the community. Yeah. And um, that doesn't just come down to representation on stage. It also comes down to representation in your creative team mm -hmm. when it comes down so much to like the vision of the director. Like, yeah, you want more equity in your directors or you want more diversity of directors. That's mm -hmm. same thing with conductors. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, changing the makers is really important. Yeah. yeah. I was also curious to dive into your unique perspective as a librarian mm -hmm. and your engagement with opera from a sort of textual approach. Mm -hmm. If that gives you a kind of unique position between the music and the drama and the performance mm -hmm. and the history, I feel like that would be a, a particular position to sit in terms of your engagement with opera it, it is really interesting it makes me think about um how the work itself like is manifesting in so many different ways right it manifests as the score but also as the actual music but also as recordings that we use and also and what i try to do as the librarian is make those manifestations line up when i'm providing them for research and planning so that we can do <laughs> good planning and don't get like caught unawares by anything. Right. It still comes from the perspective of no surprises. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's always really important to me as the librarian that my collection can supply context. Um, especially because a lot of the kind of more famous operas like need a lot of context to be, um, loved but also to be understood uh in a mm -hmm. contemporary setting um and so i th i see my work as yeah you know offering up that context um for the benefit of the of the opera um what i think about is more um you know you're talking about my role as a librarian but i also function as the archivist mm -hmm. um and it's so funny to me that we do all of this work and then we 
perform it and then it's like done. <laughs> like it goes mm-hmm. away. And my job is to preserve it, but that's not what theater opera is about. It's supposed to be this one time thing, right? You go and mm-hmm. you hear it and mm-hmm. you love it and it changes your life and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the idea that like we would capture a video of that, like that's not the theater experience to watch it in a video or that we would build um, our company's history based on like, or the, yeah, that we could construct this like timeline and history of the company based on like these like single camera videos and like audio recordings and um, press clippings and things like that. Like that stuff is not created by its creators with like long-term intention. And so I am in this funny job where I'm watching this stuff and looking at the like documents that we generate and looking at the, um, yeah, videos that we capture just to like, just to work and thinking, how can I make this outlive everybody here? Which is not the goal of anybody else in opera. <laughs> and because that's not what the point of the experience is supposed to be. Hmm. Um, so trying to document theater or trying to protect the documentation of theater feels really feel simultaneously incredibly important because there is so much work and labor and it's, I mean, I consider it like a way of honoring that labor. It's also not the point Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the opera. And so when we, yeah, when I engage with the work as an archivist, I feel really lost (laughs) or like, I feel like I am missing the point, but it also feels like I can't not, I can't just let the stuff disappear into the void which makes Hmm. me a bad theater person well yeah the huge value of documentation and preserving that documentation is for other companies to rent productions from us um yeah and so that we can share that with other organizations be like this is how we do it here this is our documented process um i think that's where a lot of the value of stuff that documents the process goes um stuff that documents the product i think is more about it really is like um, in a classic archival sense, it has no value except that we were here and we don't want anyone to forget about it. And I think taking care of that stuff is also, it's not just part of opera's history, it's part of Seattle's history. And so it's an investment in local culture and um, cultural heritage as well. People love that stuff. People <laughs> love archives. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure also donors probably are interested in having like a record of thing that they invested yes they do and they like to um people really love to offer stuff to my archive and sometimes it's stuff that i can take and sometimes it's stuff i really can't um but i'm always so like touched by that like that they've thought of my library and archive when they want to give something away that they have collected things like our programs which we actually don't take but you know that they've thought like you know this was really important to me so it should go in an archive somewhere and we i mean i find that really touching Mm -hmm. that they have such fond memories about brother not throwing their programs away Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's this really like natural human inclination to feel like someone has to take care of this stuff and i'm always really delighted when someone thinks that we should take care of this stuff like yeah 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 it's really good um i'm actually one of the only like opera librarians in the country there's like maybe three or four other people with a job Hmm. like mine it's super i i know it's super lucky and i sound like a jackass like bragging about it like oh yeah everyone lives by labor but like i'm really really fortunate I think pretty much everyone who has interacted with my library has come at it with the base assumption that it needs to exist, which really warms my heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. Yeah. At this point, we shifted the conversation from the process and the production of opera, as well as its relevance, to two excerpts of scenes chosen by Emily from specific operas. Here's Emily on why she selected these particular clips, what they mean to her, and more on how opera can help us express the otherwise inexpressible. They were really personal to me. I picked them because they were personal to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a pretty common thing is to be like, this is what 
this is what matters to me um, about opera. And I, I, I picked in particular uh, two, two scenes, uh, one from Les Notes de Figaro and um, one from the third act of Valkyra, which is the second opera in the ring cycle. But I, I picked a scene in uh, Les Notes. In Les Notes, there's like all this like um, disguises and tomfoolery, and there's kind of two main like couples, right? There's Figaro and his wife, Susanna. Uh, they work for the Count and the Countess. The Count is pursuing Susanna. Susanna's not having it. Um, the Countess is very sad that the Count is like chasing other people, right? And so Susanna and the Countess come up with this trick where the Countess will dress like Susanna. And when the Count sees her and tries to like woo her, she'll be like, just kidding, I'm your wife. Mm -hmm. But to play that trick, Susanna has to dress up like the Countess, right? Mm -hmm. While Susanna is dressed up like the Countess, her husband Figaro sees her and decides to play his own trick where he pretends that he's fallen for her disguise and starts um, hitting on her like he thinks she's the countess and Susanna's furious like they're already playing tricks but she can't believe that he's gonna like <laughs> play this trick and she she just she gets so angry and then she starts to cry because she is not the countess because she's Susanna and her you know brand new husband is already hitting on someone else and he sings to her you know like peace peace my like dear love my treasure of course I recognized your voice <laughs> To me, that is the heart of the opera. Like the scene where Susanna bursts into tears uh, because she thinks Figaro didn't recognize her. Because the whole opera is about these two relationships, these two marriages, and one of them is really toxic and dysfunctional and sad. They're both sad. Like they don't, you know, the Count and the Countess don't know how to be together, but they don't know how to be apart. And Figaro and Susanna get married in the middle of the opera. Like they're just starting on this journey. And I think in the beginning of the opera, they're excited to be married to each other. During their wedding, they're excited to be married to each other. But I think that Figaro's trick where he pretends that he believes that she's the Countess pokes at this insecurity that Susanna has about marriage in general because of this house she's living in. And so the marriage of Figaro becomes then this opera about the way that relationships around you color your own relationship, even if you don't mean them to. It reminds me of the, the Woody Allen movie, Husbands and Wives, where like mm -hmm. there are those like couple friends and one of them announced that they're getting divorced and the other couple gets divorced. And it's kind of because of that. Like it's, mm -hmm. The way that other relationships, even if you don't mean for them to, can kind of poke at and create these like deep insecurities. And then because Figaro is like, don't worry, dummy. Of course I knew it was you. Why wouldn't he know it was her? Right? She's his wife. Of course he knew it was her. Mm -hmm. But she's been in this home where everyone has been, yeah, playing these tricks on each other and everyone has been hurting each other. And so she... She really did think that he didn't know it was her. And I think in the beginning of the opera, if you had had this trick happen, it wouldn't have worked. But she's been, they've both been kind of in this like, yeah, world of unkindnesses in marriage. And when, when he is like, I didn't mean it. I was just kidding. Like, it's this really tender moment. And it's this, for me, like seeing that scene reminds me of like coming home and like, you know, my husband is like cooking something and he sticks his head out of the kitchen every night and he says, hi, like that's what coming home every night for me is like. And it's this scene in the marriage of Figaro is like that. Everyone has a relationship like that where the whole world sucks all day. And then you see this person and you're like, no, we're okay. And like, that's, that's what that music sounds like is that feeling. But to take a character like that and to create this dynamic in a few hours and then to 
give to everyone in the audience this like memory that they hold about their own relationships is absolutely a gift and something only opera can do because of the music and it's really like magnificent i think those are the things that if you don't have the vocabulary of opera Mm -hmm. and if you don't if you're busy reading subtitles Mm -hmm. and figuring out dress and costuming Mm -hmm. and I think that the thematics can get lost so easily. I mean, I read, yeah. and that's the interesting thing, is that I, I was forced to read uh, Marriage of Figaro as a classical text. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, it's it was fairly obvious, the thematics, and the mm-hmm. and then we watched parts of it as well. Aww, and of okay. course, the like when he's measuring out the room and everything, yeah, those are like scene. things that are yeah. unforgettable <laughs> because we had read it beforehand yes. and felt it differently. So it's, it's also like in the way it's taught too, of like yeah. opera can be shown in different formats mm-hmm. and you can be introduced to it in ways that you can first resonate with it yeah. and then go and see it and be like, oh my God, it's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> you know, I like, love it. I get yeah. it. I love the scene where he's measuring the room too, because that, I mean... If you have like moved in with a partner, you have had that like experience where you're like measuring the room and she's like, oh, I found this hat. What do you think of this hat? Do you like my hat? Yeah. And you're like, damn, I'm trying to move this furniture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really classic. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I think there's a reason that opera in particular has um, stood the test of time. I'm thinking right now a lot about the third act of Valkyra um, to give some context for that um it's part of the ring cycle which is 17 hours of opera <laughs> but um i think every- and that's wagner right what it's wagner yeah that's yeah. wagner's ring cycle i think the i mean the reason why i picked this scene is because i think it's definitely considered i mean i think a lot of people consider it the most emotional scene of the ring um context though uh this scene takes place between brunhilde who's a valkyrie and her father uh, Wotan, who's the god of everything, um, the big guy, the one in charge. And um, he makes this bad deal. He's got this um, castle, Valhalla, right? It's been built by these two giants. The giants want to get paid. Uh, he thought he could get away with not paying them. They were like, mm, that's not going to work. And so he ends up paying them with this uh, hoard that he gives them, but also some other like magical objects and things like that. And um, he trades away this gold, but in particular, he trades away the this ring, which is a tool for power, um, which is a big mistake. Uh, the other thing you have to know about Wotan is that his whole pursuit throughout his, you know, I guess, godhood and like self is pursuit of wisdom. And to pursue wisdom, he's made a bunch of sacrifices and deals that he can't get out of. He sacrificed his eye to drink from the water at the base of the tree of life so he could know everything and he's he's really hamstrung himself with all these contracts so he's interested in bringing about the end of the world so he can get out of all these crummy deals he's worked himself into um, so the beginning of valkyra he has these two children that are separated at birth they're twins they meet they fall in love they're twins with each other they're related anyway that's probably the hardest part for people to stomach in valkyria is the twin incest but um the first act of valkyria the twins meet and fall in love second act of valkyria is when we meet the valkyries uh there's brunhilda and her sisters they're also daughters of wotan they're so they're like half siblings of these twins so he calls his favorite daughter brunhilda and he asks her to um make sure that the uh, male twin dies in battle uh, Sigmund is his name. And because she's his favorite daughter and because she is like him in every way, she knows that that's not really what he wants. And she knows that that's not where his heart lies. And so when she flies into battle, presumably to assist in the death of Sigmund, she changes her mind and she. Uh, protects him and he ostensibly lives but instead (laughs) Wotan furious that she disobeyed him disobeyed him like shows up anyway kills everybody Brunhilde flees with uh the girl twin Sieglinda um and so that's kind of where we're at when we start in the third act of Valkyra is um he had this plan he got called out on this plan he tried to use Brunhilde 
to fix it. And she, just like him, thought she could get, <laughs> thought she could get around it. And he's so mad at her. He's mad at her. He's not mad at himself at all. And, um, <laughs> she, um, she flees first to the protection of her sisters, the other Valkyries. And when they find out what she's done, they're like, oh no, you're on your own. <laughs> like, like this, is, this was terrible. You really messed up Brunilda. And then Brunilda is, yeah, like seeking protection from her sisters and Wotan shows up and he's, he's mad and he's like the big guy. He's the big God, right? Like, so he can really mess you up. And, you know, everything that she's done so far has been because she loves him very much and because she loves him more than the world that he built that lets them both exist the way that they are. And he shows up and <laughs> all the Valkyries are like, oh shit. And they flee and they leave them alone together. And he devises this punishment for Brunhilde, which is that she's going to be trapped on a mountain and asleep until someone comes to wake her up. And whoever wakes her up, she has to be that guy's wife. That's like the deal. That's the punishment. And like, that's the thing about the punishment, right? Is like, we can say like, oh, it was a different time back then to like make up punishments like this for women. Except for that, you know, when Wagner wrote this opera, he knew that was a punishment to be delivered against her will to another man. Like he knew that was the worst thing that he could think of. He knew that was the worst thing that Wotan could think of. This like, you know, God of wisdom knew that things were rough, right? Okay, so anyway, I'm just gonna, you know, point that out next time someone says that they don't get what the big deal is. Like, point out that Wagner yeah. <laughs> knew what the big deal was. So that's the deal. And Brunilda asks her father, is what I did so shameful that you would shame me this way? And like, is... Have I degraded you so that you would degrade me this way? big question and I think it um I think it's the I think for everyone who sees that scene they've either been the parent punishing their child and knowing that they were the ones who were really wrong or they've been the child who's been punished and it's an experience if you have a parent or you are a parent mm -hmm. you have been in either of those positions and the question that she asks him you know, it was it so shameful to you that you would shame me this way shows that she knows that this is like, this is a terrible punishment too. And why, I don't know, like, why does he punish her that way when this was really his problem? And all she was doing was exactly what he raised her to do, which was everything he wanted her to do. Yeah, why do we raise our kids to be away? whether that way is, you know, compassionate or justice-minded or righteous and then punish them when they grow up to speak out. And so I really, I really love this scene because it reminds me of, I mean, because I like strongly identify with Brunhilde in this scene because I think about how when I was a kid, my own dad really encouraged this like, compassion and righteousness and sense of justice my dad was my dad is a cop and he really had this idea like you know or he still has this idea if if the right thing isn't being done you have to be the person who steps up and do the right does the right thing but since I was a girl and then turned into a woman and saw the wrong thing being done to women around me and started making noise about that that's not, you know, like that created this divide between me and my own, you know, family and parents to become this really like <laughs> obnoxious radical feminist, which was what I was taught to do. Like 
right? I was supposed to stand up for the people who were small and I was supposed to stand up for people who were hurt and I was supposed to get angry mm. if I saw things that were wrong. But when that meant calling out my own parents and my own elders and family, I was punished. And so that's the question that I have, I think, for, you know, like my dad. And I think that a lot of like tough girls like me have for their dads, which is what did I do? Is what I did so shameful that now I am ashamed. And that's opera too for me. So what happens? <laughs> what happens? Yeah. Oh, in the rest of the ring? Yeah, I mean, what happens to, to that relationship? What? Oh, she still gets punished. Yeah? Yeah, she still gets punished. And uh, she gets one concession. He lights a fire around her. And uh, the deal is that only the bravest man in the world can get through the fire. Um, <laughs> so she's like, fine. You know what? This isn't going to work. Like, obviously, you're not listening to me argue. Let's do it. Let's do the fire thing. So that's how Valkyra ends. He lights the fire after he locks her up. Um, so meaning that the only person to get through the the first person she would see would be the person the bravest yeah. person because they they're the only yeah. person who can get mm-hmm, through that fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the punishment is that yeah she's still going to be delivered unwillingly to a man to be his wife, but at least he'll be the bravest. Yeah, the bravest and not a coward. It gets weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> In the end of the opera, Brunhilde is the person who burns down the world. She's the person Hmm. who throws the ring back into the Rhine. She sets this pyre for Siegfried and it burns down like the palace that they're in, but it also burns down Valhalla. When she returns the ring to the river and the gold that was stolen to the river, it floods everything, destroys everything. And that's it. So she's the one who ends the world like Wotan wanted, gets him out of his deals. She does it because she's furious and she's done with everyone's shit. And I don't blame her at all. So that's how the story ends. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna, yeah, I was going to ask about the resolution of that, <laughs> that really, tension between yeah. father and daughter. No, and it sounds she, like daughter says, breaks the system she breaks entirely. The system. Yeah, she burns, she burns down the world, which is also an inclination that I identify with. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, I think like every opera we produce here, I latch onto something that is like this really like perfect human moment. Um, but I think those two have always like stuck, stuck with me. Yeah. Those um, are really good. Really yeah. Good moments. Yeah. They're good. Mo- well, they're, they're like my moments. In it. I mean, that's the other thing about opera too, is like opera supposed to be a story about you. And sometimes that doesn't, sometimes that doesn't work. Cause I feel like if I, if someone asked me to direct the ring, I would direct a ring that was about Brunhilde. Right. And I would direct a ring that was about, Brunhilde and her father, and I would direct a ring that was about like, <laughs> like girls who want to burn down the world because they're mad at their dads. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really deeply personal. So I think it's yeah. really, and I think what I would love um, is for people to go to the opera and say, "How is this a story about me?" And to not go in and say, "This is definitely not a story about me," because that's probably not true. There's probably something in there that you can recognize from your own life, and to like look for that when you for opera I don't, I don't know it's really wonderful when you find your story and realize that that's other people's stories too because then you are not alone and i think um storytelling is is how we get at those relationships and how we describe those dynamics when they hurt us a lot um or when they um are really ineffable we tell stories instead and music does the same thing when something is impossible to say you use music and so operas opera is the way to talk about what's hard to talk about thank you so much to emily for her time and for her candid insights and for showing me around the warehouse space where the seattle opera rehearses and plans and archives its work it was a delight to spend time with her backstage 
If you like this, subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, and get a hold of us on Twitter at PeriscopePod. Or you can email us at podcastperiscope, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. As these pings are still a new experiment for us, any feedback is much appreciated. And if you or anyone you know is a creator in the Seattle area, feel free to get a hold of me if you'd like to be a guest on another ping. Thanks to Blue Note Sessions for use of their music under Creative Commons licenses. And look out for our next full episode on scale, landing really soon, actually. And for more pings not long after that. Until then, we'll sit back and let the ineffable wash over us a bit more.